Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. We're going to preach the Word of God and try and do it in a succinct way. So again, it's a miracle if we get if we do that. But um, you guys have got no plans today. Oh, no, let's carry on. Right, why don't we, we're going to be preaching and landing our Eternity Matters series this morning, and uh, it will be short. It will be uh, to the point, uh, hopefully, God willing. But um, we've been saying in, in this series, if you have not been with us, a series called Eternity Matters, where we have been talking about the divine connection that exists between eternity and how we live today. And actually, we've been saying that actually this, this idea, we've been trying to give us perspective and lenses to see our everyday moments through the lens of eternity, and on subsequently on the back of that, giving ourselves practices where we're able to live in the light of eternity and live our lives for, for that day that is to come. And we're saying actually, this position of living for eternity is so contrary to the the, what the world preaches to us in and, in and out every day, the reality of the world. Do you know the world is preaching to you? There's a, two narratives always at play. What is being preached from the Word of God and what is being preached by the world. And we're saying that the position that the world holds on life, that actually this eternity matters, living for eternity, rallies against the, it's my body, it's my life, it's my truth. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die culture of our day. Because eternity matters says actually it's not just about this moment here and now. It's not just about your decision right now. It's not just about your body right now. It's not just about what you think matters right now. There's a different cause causing you forward. So this eternity matters is, is fighting. We have been preaching this, and I, and I really hope it's been doing something in your soul as it has been doing in mine. It's arresting my heart away from trivial things, calling me away from the light and momentary things that just sometimes so often will intoxicate us and drag us away from the call of God and reminding us that there is a high call in Christ Jesus awaiting us, calling us onwards and upwards in Him. And that's what we've been trying to do because our prayer is that we're saying we don't want to get to the end of our lives. When we face that day of eternity and when, when we close our eyes on this side of life and open them on the other side of eternity looking to Jesus face to face, we don't want to get to the end and say, if only we had known, if only I had known the significance of that moment, of those moments that I was sitting on. We don't want to get to that day and say, oh, if only I had my life to live once again. The, the, the acronym is true, YOLO, you only live once. But the Bible says, but it, true on the back of that, that everyone will face eternity based on that. So we are saying that actually we're pulling this thing together. And this morning, I want to finish this series off by leaning into a story of a man that is probably quite well known in Christian circles. He's a man who, who actually knew from the Bible, he knew the height of wealth and power, but in the same breath, he knew the depths of poverty and isolation and ignominy. He was a man who led two million people Two million people. This is, he puts any other leader to shame. A man who was able to lead two million people, and not just in the good days, but two million people for 40 years consistently through the desert. This was a man who presided over thousands of thousands baby dedications. He presided over thousands and thousands of weddings and thousands and thousands of funerals because he led them for 40 years, two million people. And actually, this man just wrote one psalm. So this man's Psalm, Psalm 90, will be on the screen behind me, the one liner from that Psalm. Psalm 90 is a Psalm of Moses. And in this Psalm, he, he narrates and he talks about the span of his life, what God has done in his life over that time. And I want to say this is the, one, the crux of that Psalm. Guess this, he makes this one prayer. He says this, Lord, teach us how to number our days. Teach us, another version says, teach us how to account for our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Other translator says, teach us how to number our days, account for our days, so that we may be able to see clearly. Actually, there's a call in this matter that we need to bring together. So I'm going to read a scripture from Hebrews 11. So if you are unfamiliar with his life, it'll be on the screen behind me. Hebrews 11, verse 23 to 29. Let's read that together. It'll be on the screen behind me. This is the whole narrative of Moses' life. So if you don't have time to read Exodus and Deuteronomy and uh, just go pouring into the scriptures, here we've got a six, seven verse that's going to help you know the entirety of what you need to know about Moses. Everyone all right? Let's meet our boy Mo. Here we go. It says this in verse 23. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his very great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. And it was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. Let's pray very briefly. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word would now come to us and would rally against the the lies of the enemy, rally against the apathies of our hearts, would call us awake where we've surrendered ground to the enemy. I thank you today, in one moment, you can reclaim everything the enemy has stolen. I thank you, Father, we position our hearts in faith before your word, and in this brief moment now, here and now, in this brief moment, would you awaken the eyes of our hearts to see eternity. I pray, Father God, today would be a day that sons and daughters start to learn how to number their days aright so they may gain a heart of wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, briefly, three daily practices. I want to talk this morning, the title is Life and Eternity. How do we drag this, this conversation of eternity into the here and now, the life? What do you do every single day? I want to give you three habits from this text that I believe will fuel you, will help you, and will sustain and, sustain and keep your hearts in line with the high call of eternity. So three daily practices for to us to live our lives for eternity. Number one, we need to learn what to refuse. Refuse. Can you say that with me? Refuse. You see, the scripture says that it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I've said it already, but I want to remind us there is a war for your souls. There's a war, an all-out war for our souls. For the souls of men and women, there's an all-out war, but often this war appears very subtly. If it was an all-out assault like you see in the movies and you see an evading army coming after your soul every day, I'm sure we would be more equipped and ready to combat and dispel the force of the enemy. But very often the enemy won't come, will come disguised and this will, less be a, all that will appear less an all-out war. It will come just as a subtle pull, a subtle drifting of our souls. You see, there's an everyday wrestle between the eternal and the temporal. Let me tell it this way. There's always two worlds preaching, advertising is preaching, social media is preaching, work environment is preaching, your bank balance is preaching, the opinion of man is preaching, as well as the more overt demonic forces, they're all pulling us into living and responding to a different identity. 
I want to tell you that Moses, in this little narrative here of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews just gives us a, the, the, the Twitter version of his life. But in this brief moment, there's an eternal pull there where he says, actually, this phrase, he says, we've got to resist the drift. There's a drift in every human heart. That, and it, and if, we, if it's left untended, our hearts will, call, will, will drift away from the call of God quicker than you can imagine. There's a, there's a response to this war, and we have to learn how to refuse. You see, in the Scripture, and stick with me for this, in the Scripture, there are three main big political forces that come against and enslave the people of God throughout the narrative of the, of the Bible. Firstly, we see the Egyptians, we see Babylon, and we see Rome. We see these three different nations, Egypt, Babylon, and Rome, that come and enslave the people of God. 430 years in Egypt, 70 or so years in Babylon. Then another 400 years or so of, of Roman rule, of, 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 of being under the thumb of the Caesars. You see, and these are the people. And actually, the amazing thing is, if you look at each narrative, the people of God went into, under these enslavements. It didn't, they didn't rush into them. The Egyptians, actually, the Israelites went into Egypt. If you know the narrative, when they went there, they went there because they were led to find freedom out of famine, not a bad thing. They went to Egypt because of legitimate reasons, but they got, they got but subtly, and all over time, they got underpinned and underpressurized by an evil empire that crushed them. You see, this is what happens very quickly. They actually, Babylon, they went to Babylon. Why? Because repeatedly they ignored the warnings of the prophetic voices. Stop doing this or you'll, go, you'll be taken into captivity. Stop doing this. And they ignored it and ignored it until it was too late. And you see, the Roman Empire came alongside the, 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 the religious empire of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and little by little they compromised and aligned themselves, the Pharisees aligned themselves with the political power of the day, rather than, and they, because of that moment, they got, their eyes got diluted and they missed the coming of the Messiah. You see, it comes, it subtly, it happens very subtly to us. But I want to help us understand how this works in this, our present day and age. Is actually, I think it's on the screen behind me, Living in Egypt, if you know the narrative, the nation of Israel became slaves to the Egyptian agenda. And their role, their identity, they were, they were treated as dirt. They had no other identity except that they were glorified brickmakers. And a whole generation, generation upon generation, 400 years worth of Israelites grew up knowing that their identity was, you are what you produce. You are what you make. You are what you do. And that, that culture of identity was established on the people. In Babylon, they were, if you don't know the culture today, where we'll find the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we all know them by those names. Those weren't their Jewish names. You see, what happens whenever the people of God went into Babylon, the first thing that Babylon did was they renamed all the people with derogatory names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just for time's sake, go have a look at those meanings. They're derogatory. They are feminizing of these men. They, they changed their identity. They said, we, you're going to be defined by what we call you. And that nation, the whole nation then were called into a different response where they had big uh, statues they had to bow down to. And slowly the compromising got in, and they're now serving foreign gods. Actually, if we look at the Roman, the identity of Roman, actually it started to understand that you are, only have value if you're aligned with the right people. The people who would have political power were the people who were able to side with Rome. That's why the tax collectors became hated because they were siding with Rome. And, and the people were selling their souls, even the Pharisees were selling their souls to be aligned with the Caesar's agenda. Let me tell you, so you see in our present day age, what I want to say these things are not just some history lesson. This is at our doorstep. These things, if you wanted to understand these, identify what is the first thing that people ask you always? What's your name? What do you do? 
And so often the subtle creep, and it's not a bad thing, but actually very quick because we are made to work. We are made to add value to the world. But very often that thing becomes our identity, and we're driven by the bottom line because we're defined by what we do. And when we lose our job, then identity falls apart, and we start living in this, this momentary thing. Yeah, we start uh, Babylon. The world starts renaming us. The world starts telling you identity, names you by your shame, names you by your failure, names you by a derogatory term. And we start then submitting ourselves to the culture of the world. And actually, Rome, we start aligning. We play a different power game where actually it's not what I do. It's actually who I know. I've got to align myself with people. And we get ourselves in relationships that are not helpful, whether, whether they're business relationships. And we start compromising on values because we're giving ourselves, no, that's the way to power. It's a subtle shift. But I want to tell you there's a re- refusing that he's having. Moses, by faith, refused to uh, be called, uh, be known as Pharaoh's daughter. That would have been a way to power. That would have been a way to, actually, I'll use this for the good of God. But he refused to take up a false identity that was not his. There's a refusing that needs to happen. And actually, if you understand the temptations of Jesus, in Luke 4, for time's sake, I won't read it. Go read it home. But this incredible understanding that Jesus has faced three temptations. And one commentator says in, the, in those three moments, Jesus deals a fell swoop, a, a death knell to every political empire that had crushed the people of God. The enemy comes and says, if you are the son of God, turn stones into bread. Do something. And in one moment says, man does not live by bread alone. But every word, from the, every word that comes from the mouth of God, poof, the nation of Egypt, the thing that was holding the people of God captive, crumbled. The next thing he says, actually takes him up in this moment and says, uh, if, takes him to a high place and says, bow down to me and I'll give everything to you. What do they do in, in Babylon? Bow down, bow down, then you can eat. Bow down, then you can have ability. Jesus says, I'm not going to bow down. I'm going to trust God alone. Man must serve no one. If you just look at it, it's so profound. In the third moment, takes him to a high place. He says, actually, jump off and I'll give it all to you. And in the moment, saying, perform, perform for power. In the moment, Rome was come down. You see, the people were all looking for a powerful figure, but Jesus was not going to play by the world's games. He came as a different king, a servant king. They came with a different response, with an identity driven from heaven, not from earth. Now, why am I saying this to you? Maybe this is like all theory for us, but I want to tell you that actually every day you and I need to firstly be aware that there's a war for our souls and it's subtle. It's not coming parading as Egypt or Babylon or Rome. It's coming as your work situation. It's coming as a credit card. It's coming as keeping up with the Joneses. It's coming up as actually extend yourself in different ways where you shouldn't be doing. It comes as compromise just a little bit. When actually we have to refuse every day, there's a refusal that has to take place in our hearts, a refusal to greed, to credit card debt, to fear, to anxiety, for to working long hours and not being present for our families, a refusal to be seduced by our social media feeds. There has to be a resisting of the drift. If there isn't, your heart, here's a disclaimer, without the resisting, the drift will hap- happen. It happens. I haven't been around long, but it's just seen in my own heart and I've seen in many other people's hearts. Without a front-footed refusal to go the way of the world, our hearts drift. I've driven dodgy cars for a long time. And when I had my, my, my conquest, the alignment was so shot that actually, if you're driving down the, the, the freeway, and, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I get distracted driver, especially with a beautiful wife. I start looking at her. And I start talking with my hands. But very quickly... With bad alignment, can I tell you, the car, what, it just drifts, and you're, and you're on the cat's eyes very quickly, and you're on the gravel. Like, whoa! I, 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 something I learned with the conquest. Sounds so silly. I've got to forcefully position my hands on that wheel and align myself in a different direction to keep myself going straight. 
And I know there's, I could take that in a metaphor in different directions, but I actually think sometimes our hearts are predisposed to drift. So we have to take hold of our cars, hold of our lives, and actually put them in the direction of eternity. Because by, by the nature of our hearts, our hearts won't go to eternity. Our hearts, hearts will go for what is temporary and what satisfies now. But if we lay hold of these things, Egypt, Rome, Babylon, they will have no power over you and I. We have to refuse at daily. I'm refusing to be known by anything else but what the Word of God describes my identity as. Secondly, for time's sake, we have to choose. Not just refuse, we have to choose. You see, the Scripture says, He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for He was looking ahead to His very great reward. It's not just saying no to things, it's actually saying yes to some things. He chose, deliberately he chose a different path. And there's an analogy I've always loved was when I first got married and, uh, and I had grown for, for many years as a, as a, a single bachelor living with, in a place where actually we with limited cooking skills. My life consisted of garage food and takeaways. And uh, I know, look, look at this body, it's just lean and trim. But I remember when I got married to my wife and then all of a sudden this new idea of coming home to a home-cooked meal was like revelation. It's like, what? It's going to be there waiting for me. It's going to be smelling good. It's going to be healthy. It's incredible. But there had to come moments. There were moments driving home at night and I just the old habits of driving past Burger King, McDonald's, Steers, and I'd drive past and I was hungry. And my hunger would dictate, actually, you know, now I'm hungry, feed me now, because that's how I grew up. Uh, for, for about eight years, there was no scheduled, you eat when you wake up, and then you have a second meal at lunchtime, and a third one in the evening. I know, that's what most people do. But as a bachelor, you ate when you were hungry and when you had money. So my life up to that point was determined by my hunger. But now, as I was driving home, I knew that actually if I stopped and I ate at Burger King, not only was I going to feel rotten a little bit later, if you work for Burger King, we love Burger King. But I'm saying not only would I feel a little bit, ah, not actually, I'll be satisfied temporarily, but feel a little bit weirder afterwards. But actually, I had something better waiting at home. A home-cooked meal, and I was actually dishonoring my wife by doing that. And I had to learn, silly example. But actually, so often, I think as we read the scriptures, our hearts, again, can be so easily determined, our lives just determined by our hungers rather than the high call of Jesus. And we have to start choosing a different response. Choosing, I have to start choosing a different route home. Choosing because it sounds so silly, but the pull of fast food was strong on me. But actually, I had to determine a different path because there was a different aim. Silly example, but pull it into the scripture. Actually, God has called us again and again through scripture. He says, choose heavenly things over earthly pleasures. He, he talks around actually everything that we do. I, I want to tell you that actually we have to weigh every pursuit in light of eternity. Now you might say, that sounds, that sounds huge. The Bible calls us that that's how important these matters are, that we actually should weigh every pursuit. Because in the very end, he says everything we do will come under the fire of God. And what was, was, had eternal value will remain and what had earthly value will be burnt up. On a purely logical state, a sense of, of honoring, using your time wisely. Why give your time to things that will not make it through the fire? No, I want to say, speaking of rewards, it's in saying that he was looking ahead to his very great reward. The ESV says, looking ahead to the reward. The reward. Not like the best of, of a few. No, the reward. The one that actually every human soul was designed for. He was looking forward to that. And I want to say, speaking of rewards, do you know that in the scripture, everything you do for Jesus here on earth is being put to your credit in eternity? Everything. 
There's an, a, your bank account is just being accredited, credited, credited with everything you do. I cannot get away from scriptures that actually every time I say no to sin and yes to Jesus, my credit is going up in, in heavenly rewards. Everything, every time I serve, every time I give, I love, I give of myself to other people, I'm sowing into, into an account that does not devalue that does not have junk status, that are not determined by the markets. It's, an, it's a reward that is waiting for me. And the church has very thin theology on heavenly rewards. But it's all over the scriptures. And actually so much so that actually every single, the Bible tells us that every single one of us will come and face, the, it's a portion to man to die once and face the judgment seat of Christ. Now you might, whoa, 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 but what about the Christians? Will we face judgment? Yep, we will. But not the judgment that will between heaven and hell. But we'll face the, because Christ has done that on our behalf. But we'll face judgment. It's called the the beamer, the word beamer, the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne. We will be handed out rewards for everything you've done on earth. There's rewards waiting for you. And I read this and I go, He chose on this side. He chose a different path based on that side. Too many Christians are choosing a different path because they're actually not too concerned about that side. But the scriptures bring alignment to our hearts. They're actually not every day, not only do we have to refuse, there's every day we have to choose. Make a choice. What am I going to sow into? What am I going to invest into? What am I going to pour my time into? What am I going to pour into something that has temporary rewards here or heavenly rewards there? There has to become an alignment. Finally, third, thirdly here, it says this. Not only do we have to refuse, not only do we have to choose, we have to move. It says, it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. You see, there's not just a refusing and a choosing, there's a moving that's required. He left Egypt. I want to tell you, obedience is the language of eternity. Across the world, obedience is the forgotten word. It's the swear word of the church, when actually obedience is not a legalistic word. It's a word of pleasure and joy. I want to ask you the question, every day, you are, who are you becoming? I've had the privilege in the last, few, last little while, somebody made the statement once, I've seen it close up, that actually, as people get older, people either become very grumpy, old people, people that you just don't want to be a part, or they just become really amazing people. It's hard to find an, an older person who's down the middle. It's almost like there's this, it's actually like, it's almost like as that we are becoming something. As we go on in life, we, getting to, we are becoming, I want to ask you a question, who are you becoming? Not just in character, but I'm saying, who are, where have you made a decision, which, which, which direction have you pointed your life in? It, takes, it takes a, a, makes a, a decision on that front, because I want to say, actually, there's a faith move that needs to happen. And I want to ask you the question, as we land this series, where have you become stagnant? Where have you become crippled, paralyzed with anxiety and fear and shame? And the next question is, what are you going to do about it? Because there's a narrative of, uh, just to jump text very quickly, John 5, there's a story of a man who was crippled for 38 years. And he's, lay, and he's, and he's lied in the same position for such a long time at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. And if, as we read the text, we find out that actually there was this, this understanding around this pool that actually once a day an angel would come down from heaven and he would stir the waters of the pool. And as the waters moved, the first person who was sick God, who got in it would get healed. So you can imagine if this was something that was believed and true, people, the crippled people and sick people would come and gather in their multitudes around this pool. So we've got this man who's crippled for 38 years. He's lying there, but there's cripples everywhere and sick people coughing and spluttering everywhere, waiting for the waters to start moving once a day. 
Can you imagine? It's like a feeding frenzy. As soon as the water starts moving, people are pulling themselves over and legs are flying and people are jumping over people because somebody, first one and gets healed. And this is going on and the story takes a, 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 a diversion when Jesus walks into the story. And it says Jesus walks in, he makes his way over to this crippled man. And it's amazing how there's a room full of crippled people around this pool, but actually they're all looking for something for their healing over there with their water, but none of them see the healer walk in. They all miss the healer the one who holds their eternal healing in their hands. They all miss it because their eyes are on a different place, a temporary place, a temporary solution. They don't see eternity walk into their midst. And he just walks up to this crippled man and does a fascinating thing. Crippled guy for 38 years who is basically at the hospital. He's basically at the place where sick people go. And Jesus, who knows everything, asks him a bizarre question. He says, what do you want? It's like the guy's like, huh? Um, a condo and a nice uh, car. No, he's like, I want to walk. You know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just, doesn't, he, he actually wants to hear, what do you want? Because so many hearts are just indifferent. We, we, we'll, we'll drift out of the way, they drift our way through life, but actually it's not people who just drift, it's people who take, make a decision. We, actually, what do I want? And he said, no, I want, I want to walk. And Jesus says, okay, then why don't you? He said, but I can't, because every time the water stirs, I can't get there. There's no one to help me. The next thing Jesus says is so politically incorrect. Jesus says to a crippled guy who hasn't walked for 38 years, who's just said, I've got no one to help me. I need somebody to carry me there. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to carry you there. Well, I'm here for you. Buddy, come on. We'll get you in a program. We'll help you. No, no, no. Jesus says this, get up and walk. How inflammatory. How uncaring of Jesus. No. In that moment, that guy, the dividing line was put there. Which side of the story do you want? You choose. And that moment, are you going to be defined by Egypt, by what you do or what you don't do? You're going to be defined by Babylon. You're going to be defined by Rome, by the identity the world's given you. Or you're going to be defined by my voice in this moment, and it's going to need a movement and a response and obedience. And in that moment, it says this guy, he picked up his mat, and he started to walk. It's like unbelievable. Can you imagine that moment? And it's, it's like this is revival breaking out. And I always say, where did the healing happen? Jesus didn't lay hands on them. There wasn't a, a prayer team in the background. We believe in laying of hands. We believe in prayer teams. But I tell you, those things are, are superfluous if there's no obedience. And actually, the healing came when the guy obeyed, took Jesus at his word. The healing came. I, I love this moment as I land this time because actually that word Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda means two things, and translators have struggled. The word Beth means house, it's like Bethlehem, but Beth means house, and Hesda, people, they struggle to translate Hesda because it could mean the positive or the negative. So the positive means, Bethesda means house of mercy and grace, or it could mean the negative, house of shame and disgrace. And I go, oh, why did they use that word to describe it? Or maybe that word was used on purpose. That actually a moment there, in that moment, that place, that pool could have been the house of shame and disgrace if he had not taken up Jesus' call. But because he obeyed, it became the house of mercy and grace. I want to tell you, every single day, you and I have that opportunity to make a decision Will we allow that voice or this voice to determine where we're walking. And you and I need to respond in obedience. As I land this time, I the scripture will be on the screen behind me. I cannot land this with going out anywhere else. The fact that Moses, by faith, commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. And by faith, the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. I love the fact that actually Moses, if you don't have time to dig into the symbolism of the power of these moments, but Moses celebrated Passover before he saw the deliverance it would bring. 
There was no other, there was no historical understanding, oh, this has worked before. But by faith, he did it knowing in the, what would happen in the future. And again, with, this, with walking through, there was a Passover, but then we also see the passing through of the Red Sea. We see this moment where actually, a moment he holds up staff, the waters part, and the whole nation goes through, and the Egyptians then, as they try to follow them through to destroy them, the waters close on them, destroying the nation of Egypt in a moment. Can I tell you, I said this on the Wednesday in our, in our city night, but there's the, the first song that appears in the Bible is found in Exodus 15, after this narrative. It's called the Song of Moses. And Moses starts to declare the goodness of God, saying the horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. And it's this this song. Moses, who's a leader of two million people, he says, teach us to number our days aright. And he sees the enemy coming to pull them back into slavery. But in that moment, he says, I'm not going to look backwards. I'm not going to look sideways. I'm actually going to trust God. I'm going to refuse what Pharaoh says. I'm going to make a different choice. And I'm not going to just stand here. I'm going to move forwards and hold his hand up and watch what God did. On the back of seeing God fight his battles, he starts to sing. He starts to sing. Can I tell you what's the last song that's recorded in the Bible? The last overt song is actually found in Revelation 15. And the title, if you guys see it, Exodus 15, Revelation 15, the title there says, The Song of Moses and of the Lamb. What we'll be singing on the end of this whole story, this whole narrative, when this whole thing concludes, when the, the enemy Satan, we're told, will be finally cast down into the fire, fiery lake, what we will be doing is we'll be like Moses singing. He has done it. The battles is the Lord. I want to tell you, in this moment, Sir Ma'am, Whereas we're preaching eternity, this is not devoid away, a, a, a series that's pie in the sky away from the life, from the here and now, from the trials, from the tribulations, the fear, the anxiety, the nation, your marriage. It's not a, a devoid of those things. This is actually the fullness of underlining those things, saying those things have significance because there's an eternal story. I want to tell you in this moment, if your marriage seems dead in the water... Your loneliness seems to overwhelm you. Your anxiety seems to cripple you. Your addiction seems to control you. I want to tell you that the story of God is parenthesized by His goodness. Exodus 15, He's singing. Revelation 15, we'll still be singing of the blood of the Lamb that is more than enough for you and I. Today, we have a decision to respond. And this response is not in, come on, suck it up, let's do it, let's try harder. Refuse, choose, and move. They'll be good, but they'll sustain you for a little while. But you're choosing, you're refusing, and you're moving if it's sustained by the fact that he has done it. The eternal victory has been won. He pulls me through the waters, pulls me through the trials, and he sustains me in them because he is enough. Why don't we stand to our feet? Today, I feel God is wanting to bring alignment to hearts, hearts that are drifting, emotions that are drifting, fears that are drifting, that maybe you believed a thing for a long time, or, and frustrations that are drifting, things that were once were in control, habits that were in control, and they've been drifting, and you say, actually, I, I want to bring my heart back in line with the promises of God, with the faithfulness of God. Though I don't see it, I want to believe it. I want to be, though I don't see the victory, I want to be singing the victory still, God. Would you hold my heart in this moment? If you today are saying, actually, I'm wanting to resist the drift by refusing the identity the enemy is trying to put on me, by choosing 
a different reward, living for a different reward, not today's reward, but a different reward, and by moving, by responding in obedience to us. If that's you, like my heart, would you raise your hands? Father, I pray for us as your church, your people. I pray for a revelation, an understanding of your goodness, your faithfulness, and the power of the blood of the Lamb. That what the enemy planned for evil, you turn for good. That what the enemy has spoken destruction over, you speak your life. I thank you, Father God, right now, every marriage, every relationship, every work environment, every fear, every identity, every shame, every sin, right now comes under the blood of Jesus. The blood that speaks a better word and says that I am enough for you. I thank you, Father God, you take defeated hearts, broken hearts, weary hearts, and you start to cause them to be singing hearts. God, by a touch of your spirit, even right now, people, I pray right now, who've experienced loss this year, who've lost loved ones, I thank you, Father God, that you put the song in their heart, a song in their heart. People who've gone through traumas this year, put a song in their heart, because the battle belongs to the Lord. I thank you, Father, give us eternal eyes to see you, to know you, to trust you. I pray this is a blessing over every single one of us as we refuse, choose, and move towards the high calling of Christ Jesus. I pray this over every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.